0: Good morning, if you would open your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 1, so right after the book of James, 1st Peter chapter 1, uh, next week we'll start, uh, Pastor Justin, if he's better, we'll start 1st Kings chapter 1, uh, the following week I'll get into chapter 2 and we'll sort of be going back and forth between 1st King, Kings and Matthew and we'll be, we'll be doing some teaching through there, but... This week, I wanted to um, share something that's been on my heart for quite a while. I I have personally been studying the book of 1 Peter uh, pretty regularly. I've always been intrigued with the idea of being an exile. Um, And everybody here knows what an exile is. I I was so intrigued with it that the final series I preached at the Well of Nelson before we joined into Rockfish was titled... Exiled Ambassadors, and we preach through 1 Peter. It's personally been challenging for me because I've always been very patriotic. I've been true blue, red, white, and blue, right? And I've always had a desire to chase after and follow Jesus. And the two don't necessarily have to be exclusive, but one certainly must dominate the other. And so the theme of an exile is sort of prevalent are prevalent all through the Old Testament. If you look in Genesis, mankind is exiled because of the consequences of sin. And that theme continues. In Exodus, the sons of Jacob, which will become the nation of Israel, they find themselves exiled in Egypt for 400 years. The northern kingdom in Israel is taken into exile by the Assyrians. And Daniel is uh, one of the I guess, more promising Israelites who's taken into exile in in Babylon. The Old Testament ends with an effort to restore the exiles with Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's not a full restoration of the kingdom and self-government. When Jesus came, Israel wanted a Messiah who was to restore them to their glory. But His idea of restoring glory and their idea of restoring glory were different. So this week I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 9 and I'm going to do sort of um, I'm really preaching about nine sermons in one. So I have to sort of fast forward through a couple things. But what I would love to be able to to help you see here, particularly in verses 3 through 5, is that Peter is encouraging us, but particularly his listening audience at that time, to thrive and to prosper even though they're in really uncomfortable circumstances. The early church found themselves in very, very difficult times. And so he's trying to encourage them to thrive and to prosper. So look closely. I'm going to read verses one through nine, and then we're going to go back and look a little bit closer at the first couple verses, and then we'll really we'll, we'll unpack some stuff in three through five, then we'll unpack some stuff in six through nine. Okay? So if you would look with me at first Peter chapter one. Control my mind, and let me speak the words that you have given me to speak on your holy word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So looking closely at the first few verses, we see some key words. And again, I can't spend tons of exegetical time on this, but we see sanctification, obedience, and blood application. So we see sanctification, obedience, and blood and salvation, blood application. We are, we are saved by the blood of Christ. We sang about it earlier. As we look at the remaining six verses here in this text, the others, what we see so prevalent in, these, in, in the beginning here is hope. So we, we see the word Sanctification and obedience and, and, and the application of blood. These are things that, that should encourage us and strengthen us. We are sanctified, which means we are becoming more like Christ. That requires obedience. And the, 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 the undergirding foundation of all of that is salvation. We are not obedient and sanctified in order to obtain the salvation, we are obedient and we go through sanctification as a result of salvation. And that's the big difference between religion and relationship, right? And so this should give us comfort as we start. So Peter opens up with that. He says, you've all been dispersed. You're elected. You, that's chosen. You've been chosen to be exiles, God has actually chosen to exile you. And he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and we're going to see in a minute, he he says God the Father again. This should bring us comfort. This isn't God with a hammer sitting on the cloud waiting for you to mess up. This is Daddy who loves you and has a plan for you. And sometimes we go through difficult things by our fathers in order that we would come out. Obedient and more like Christ. And he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter opens up with the acknowledgement that you're in a difficult spot. You've been chosen to be exiled. You've been chosen to be persecuted. You've been been chosen for this. And he says, This is going to bring you peace and joy. What? This is bizarre. But so as we look at this, we see hope. Now, in the lexicon, hope is defined as expectancy or a confidence that there is purpose and value to life. That's what hope is. An expectancy or a confidence that there is purpose and value to life. So the exiled believer, and we are all exiled, This world is not my home, right? The old hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We are all exiled here, and the purpose gives us hope. That is the driving thing. So at the top of the list here of words that would jump out of the text, it's hope. Peter wants to give the readers here hope, and that hope is going to lead to something later, so you're going to see that in a minute. So here in verses 3 through 5, I want to answer three real quick questions. Who's in charge? Who am I? And what does my future hold? These three important questions and answers to those questions help propel us through really the rest of the, 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 the book of 1 Peter, but really those give us a solid foundation off of which to work. So who is in charge? Obviously answer, God the Father. Verse 3, look at verse 3 again. Peter begins with this first point, easy to understand, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is an easy phrase for us to just kind of shoot past. We see phrases like this combined all the time. But let that sink in for a minute. Like I said earlier, we don't have a a God who's sitting cross-legged on a a cloud with a hammer in His hand waiting for you to mess up. We have a Father who is standing at the doorway calling us home on a regular. Peter says, God is blessed. He's probably writing in that good Jewish tradition of of the synagogue. They would open up in prayer and they would spend probably the first hour hour just saying blessed be and he would and they would say it's common they would they would recite they would pray in silence oftentimes benedictions and blessings that's how they would open synagogue up and so peter is picking up on this good jewish pattern and he's just saying blessed be god the father god is god and he is blessed for it he is a blessed God who is not only God, but He's our Father. He loves us because we're His children. Now we would run out of paper and ink if we had to list all the blessingness and all the blessedness. And we could sit here and talk about God is blessed because this and God is blessed because that. He's sovereign. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's, he's independent, yet triune. He's unchangeable. We could go on and on. God is all that and more. He's God. The text continues and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not merely an abstract, distant God. He's in close, loving, relatable, relating. He is for us. Because He is of the triune. The person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. These are personable, individual yet one. So this little phrase brings out this beautiful and encouraging aspect that certainly the Jewish reader would have understood right away. God is in charge. Because he just got done saying, you've been elected as exiles. And blessed be the God and Father of Jesus. He's saying, don't worry. You've been chosen for this by the person who's in charge of all of this. From eternity past, God the Father with the Son, they had this beautiful, true relationship and He extends that love to us. He loves us as He loves His Son who existed in eternity before and forever. So when the Bible says that God loved the world and sent His Son, we need to understand that He loved His Son first. He loved that koinonia, that perfect relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And He was willing To fracture that for us, he was willing to send Jesus in the flesh to live perfect, die sacrificially, and raise victoriously. He was willing to do that. This is a God who's in control. This is a God who's in charge. And so when we answer the question, who's in charge? God's in charge. God the Father is in charge. You ever come into a place where you say, hey, who's in charge here? We were just talking about this before church. Well, I think he is. Uh, I'm pretty sure that guy is. If you don't know who's in charge, you're in trouble. So Peter establishes that right away. God's in charge. And then he gives us our identity. Who am I? Where do I fit in this? Answer, your identity is in your genes. Verse 3. Again, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The key action in the section here is: it's called, you have been born again. Here's your identity. You also get all of the privileges that Jesus gets. The word born again there has the idea of conception. It's actually got its roots in, conce- in the word for that, that, that we derive and create conception from. It's, it's not just about, it's, it's, it's not even about birth. It's, it's actually you were conceived in God's mind before the foundation of the world. Your identity. The King James translates it begotten. If you look at the old King James Version. The idea that God has children and they are His and they are begotten by Him. He fathers them. This should bring us great comfort and give us our identity. Our identity, first and foremost, is that we are a child of the King. Which is why when I said in earlier on where I've always had that battle between am I a patriot or am I a follower of Christ, I am a son of God. And so I can look and see on my birth certificate, who my Father is. My Father is God. That is my identity. We discussed this so many times before in so many previous sermons. But we see that we are His child. So we know He's in charge. We know who we are, which means we know the pecking order. And it is what? All according to His great mercy. God gave us a living hope And so, this conception, this new birth, produces a living hope. And we said earlier, hope is the expectancy or the confidence that there is purpose to life. So the promise of the Father is that He gives us a living hope. Because we're getting ready to talk about the suffering. We're getting ready to talk about the trials, the difficulties. The prophet Jeremiah, in his exile, he says, mercies are new every morning. We actually sang about it earlier. Your mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins there are many, His mercy is more. And and, and the prophet just reiterates that. Not only is there new life from the Father and a, a new identity for us, We know that He's in control. We know who we are in the big picture. And then lastly, in this section, we see what does the future look like? So, all right, we know who's in charge. We know our role. What's that mean? Well, this is the best part of Christian hope. And I get a bit tired of convincing myself of this, to be honest with you. It is necessary and essential and good that we understand what the future looks like because we have a tendency to focus on the now. We automatically hone in on what is happening now. And all of our efforts and all of our frustrations and all of our contingencies and all of that go on the now. So Peter is trying to remind us again That there's something bigger than the now. This is the best part of Christian hope. And again, this is the hardest part for me to constantly remind myself of. Our hope is in our inheritance. Our hope is in our inheritance. We will spend eternity together with our Creator, Daddy. And These things that happen now hurt us and cause us to focus on those things because we want to get rid of that hurt. Peter's trying to remind us that this hurt is actually necessary for the inheritance. And that's a hard word to say. That's a hard word to fill a room full of people and say, hey, it's going to stink for a while, but it's going to be really good in the end it's different than the inheritance that our parents leave us that's different that's different because we need to be dead before our kids receive that we serve a living god who is active and productive and involved in these two little wonderful verses right here of future hope three words used to describe this inheritance imperishable undefiled and unfading it doesn't go away in other words to describe it we would say it doesn't it doesn't decay it doesn't it doesn't rot so it's not like the mouse that died in the wall of your house and stinks the place up for a while There's no decay to it at all. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Some illustrations of that would be, as I said, the mouse that dies in your wall. Or the bread. You ever have that bread that falls down in between the crack of the counter and the refrigerator? And then like six months after you pull the refrigerator out to clean it? You see your science project back there? It's all covered in mold and it's nasty. Some of you are like, you wait six months to clean behind your refrigerator? Yes, we do. Or that nice new shirt that you got. And over the time, the color fades and the buttons wear because it's perishable. It fades. But this inheritance is what? Look at the verse. Look at the text. It is kept in heaven for you. It is imperishable, unfading. It is the ultimate inheritance. John MacArthur says this. He says, Christians live life forward, but understand it backward. Are we a Christian that really does that? Do we actually live life forward, but understand it backward? If Jesus endured exile for us, suffered for us, and conquered death, and rose from the dead, that makes all the difference. Because the inheritance that we get helps us to see this, what we're focused on right now, as a speed bump and not a wall. So, what does the future look like? It's full of hope. It's full of hope. Because no matter what the world can throw at us, the inheritance is unfading, imperishable, and it is kept in heaven for us. So, what does that do? That drives us. That drives us to power through It drives us to have security. You ever know... I grew up in a little neighborhood in Newark, Delaware. And there was a kid who lived across the street from me. And he and I had the wiffle ball bat wars all the time. And you remember when they came out with the really big wiffle ball bat? Bigger isn't always better. Let me tell you why. Because when you get hit with one of those big wiffle ball bats, it bounces off. You get a real wiffle ball bat that has the real hard yellow plastic and you get hit with that, it's going to hurt and it's going to stay. But there's a confidence that is built and I remember when that boy that lived across the street from me, he got that big bat and he came a marching across the street like, "Yeah, look. I got this." And I looked at it like, "My brothers have hit me with that 15 times and it never hurt." Bring it on, buddy. I had a confidence in something that I already knew was tested. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. This is what happens. There's a confidence that comes, even when crazy things are, and you think, oh man, he's got a much bigger, wider, open, giant bat. Mm -mm, That one, I've been through that. (laughs) Come on. There's a confidence that gets built in our faith when we persevere in difficult times. Because we're able to look back and see that. And and Paul addresses that here. So there is a security that comes from that inheritance. God is God. He's our Father. He assures us a final destiny. And as we continue in to verses 4-9, through we see that this is what a father does for a long journey. Anybody in here who has kids knows that when you go on a long journey, what do you have to do for the children? Keep them occupied. I remember taking a trip to Nashville, and if I had a nickel for every time that boy on the front row right there asked me how many miles, and were we there yet, and how many more hours, and were we going to stop, you have to keep them occupied during a long journey. We have a Father in heaven who is going to keep us occupied for a long journey. He assures us of the final destiny and it is already tested and true. So look with me again as we look back into the text in verse 4 and we continue to read. To an inheritance, and we just read this, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you verse 5 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary if necessary you have been grieved above various trials so when we hear Peter say, rejoice, what do you mean, rejoice? This is a really difficult time. I've lost loved ones. I've lost jobs. I've lost properties. The word translated is being glad or exalting in something. In other places in the Bible, the target of the word is, is emotion and passion of the heart. Just a couple examples where we find this similar. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. This is the same rejoice. So when, when it all finishes and we're presented to Jesus as His bride, this is the same rejoice word that we're supposed to have in our sufferings. Now that's going to be a great day. And yes, we're going to rejoice. But it's the same rejoicing that we're supposed to have in our sufferings. Matthew 5, 11 through 12 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What's the next word in the verse? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. It's imperishable, it's uncorruptible, it's unfading. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's even speaking there of the longevity of the trip. We've still got a couple more miles to go. Rejoice. And then he says it again in 1 Peter chapter 4, as you continue into 1 Peter. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter links the two together. He says, as happy as we're going to be when we're presented to Christ as a bride, that's how happy we should be when we're going through sufferings. The Greek word there is, is different than the one for joy. Peter is almost aiming at a more godly endurance, calm emotions in trial. The ability to find purposeful contentment in hardship. This is the aim. Do all of us fall short of this? Apsa stinking lutely. Apsa stinking lutely. That's, a, that's an actual quote you can... Apsa lutely. His aim here is to help us fight for the joy and the passion and the delight in suffering as much as we have the joy and the delight And the happiness in other things. Peter aims to help us combat emotional distress with emotional rejoicing. So is it wrong for you to cry when you lose a loved one? No. Absolutely not. Is it wrong for us to act out and and be upset when something doesn't go the way we think it should go? Be angry and sin not. Peter aims to help us combat this. The goal is to overpower the sorrow of suffering with the Gospel-loving affection that makes us joyful and happy. So, if we're focused on the suffering... It ends. Our joy ends when the thing that we've been focused on ends. But when we look beyond the suffering to the imperishable, uncorrupted, unfading inheritance, we can still be sad in the suffering and hurt in the suffering, but the hope pushes us through to the other side. And there's no the 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 joy of the Lord doesn't end. So I'm not suggesting the goal is to not be sorrowful. Suggesting that God intends for sorrow and happiness to coexist in the heart of his exiles. So why am I suggesting this? Well, one, I'm not, God is. Peter wants us to help to be exiles in a place where we can rejoice in a world full of disappointments. Now remember, the disappointments that come from this world are a result of the fall. They are a result of sin. So what God is doing is He is saying, I understand that you're going to go through these trials. There is an inheritance on the other side that is way, way better than anything you could even fathom that you could enjoy, even if everything was perfect on this earth, it would be pale in comparison if you walked through this earth and never had a trial this earth would still look filthy when presented with what god has for us so peter wants us to help to rejoice and be happy and be full of joy hopefully you know me well enough to know that there's a very important place for lament Matter of fact, I preached a little two week series on it in between this series and the final series I preached at the well. So, lament is still godly. It is okay to cry out and say, Oh God, oh God, oh God. But there is a joy that comes in the hope that drives us through that. So, lastly, I want us to see how we can rejoice as we close this out. We're going to rejoice in three ways. And if you, if you don't get anything else out of today, take this home with you. Rejoice by reflecting on life's trials. Let's go back to the text and take a look. He says, in this, okay, he says, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice, comma. though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So first, he says, rejoice as you reflect on life's trials. The first thing Peter does in in, in this closing section of the text is he sets the context and he challenges us spiritually. This is what you're going to face, exiles. He doesn't say, hey, it's all going to be trumpets and roses. He says, you're going to experience difficulties. And we know that the rest of the book talks about suffering. Which is is particularly why I've been studying 1 Peter so much, because of the world we find ourselves in. But this is the first place that that Peter starts to mention the suffering. So it's important to note that Peter's approach here to suffering and the context in which this letter is written to an exiled group of people who are being persecuted, he says, first, let's point this back to some spiritual realities. He says, in this you rejoice. He's referring to what we just talked about in verses 3 through 5. We have a God who's in charge. You have an identity that makes you his son. You have a future that is secured, tested, and tried. It should build confidence in you. And then you can rejoice in this. Praise to God for the miracle of conversion. Praise to God for the power of his resurrection. Praise to God for his heavenly influence. So when we rejoice and we reflect on life's trials, most of you here could look back and say, I went through something that was really difficult. And at the time, I really struggled to see God in it. But now I can look back and I can see God in every step. Most of us here could probably say that. Maybe not some of these guys, but most of us here can look back and see that. I can see God in that. Rejoice as we reflect on past trials because we see the power of God at work. We see the promise of his inheritance true to form. So our rejoicing comes by reflecting on our life's trials. The other thing that causes us to rejoice as we reflect on life trials is because we can also say we look back on some past life trials and we left God completely out of it. And we see what a mess we made And we can rejoice that God has turned the light on for us so that when we face a similar trial, we now know the source of our power. So we can look back on a successful trial. We can look back on a difficult and and what we would consider a failed trial. And we can still rejoice in both because we can say, God got me through that or now I know that I should have leaned on Him. I should have cried out to Him. And even in that, We see God in it. So we rejoice by reflecting on our life's trials. The second thing that causes us to rejoice, trials trials have a way of making us stop and reflect about the bigger needs and the bigger issues in our life. Think about tragedies that happen. Every time there's a national tragedy, churches are filled. The next Sunday, church... Church houses that had 30 on average have 60. And then three weeks later, they're back to 30. How quickly we forget! But trials have a way of making us stop and reflect on the bigger things. I spoke to a friend this week who had, for years, sort of dismissed um, mental health issues. He had been sort of... Um, what would I say, neglectful of understanding mental health issues. I had a conversation with him and he was telling me about how he had experienced basically a mental breakdown. I hadn't talked to him in a long time. He had experienced a a mental breakdown. And it was difficult and it was hard. And as he reflected back on it, he talked about how God opened his eyes up to things that he had been blinded to for years. And now, how God not only opened his eyes up to him, but he has now championed him to fight for this, particularly in the church world. So this suffering that came upon him, he was able to look back and rejoice, even though it was a difficult time, even though there was considerable loss, he was able to see what God had for him in it. He literally rejoiced as he reflected on the most difficult, what he said was the most difficult trial of his life. So, one, we rejoice when we reflect on life trials, and two, we rejoice as we see the refinement in our life. So, having taken a step back and given a little bit of perspective to his reading audience, Peter turns and he says, What happens inside the heart or in the spiritual life of a person? This is what happens inside an exiled person's life. Peter highlights the spiritual purpose in suffering. And he helps us to consider what's unseen. Verse 7, he starts with the words, so that. Which should be a very clear marker for what follows. So if you look at verse 7, and he begins with, so that. So that. The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than the gold that, perishes, through, uh, that uh, perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So these verses tell us that trials result in a faith that is tested, genuine, and valuable. One of the commentators that I was reading this week said, Suffering functions as the crucible for faith. They test the genuineness of faith, revealing whether or not faith is actually authentic. Now, the words tested genuineness are really a single word in the original language. If you look at the Greek lexicons, which is actually, if you're reading an NASB right now, when you read the text with me, it said the proof of your faith. It's the same word used in James chapter 1 when he says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The idea is fairly simple and it's fairly straightforward. Anyone can claim to be a follower of Jesus, but that belief gets tested and proven in hardship. Anybody can say that they follow Jesus, but hardship shows us, it reinforces to us and to others that we truly have faith in Him. Truly have faith in Him. It totally makes sense, doesn't it? I think about this and I say, when I go through a trial, is my faith strengthened in it or weakened in it? Is is my testimony strengthened in it or weakened in it? It's way too easy to say something, but it's a lot harder to Show up. So our relationship with Jesus is meant to be apparent not only to others, but to us. It is meant to strengthen our faith. Some of you remember that children's song based on Matthew 5. Uh, I think it's like verse 15 or 16. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Why is that? Because the gospel, by definition, is good news. And we don't stifle good news. We want to run around and tell good news. But the tendency of the flesh is to actually run around and tell bad news. That is the tendency of the flesh. We are more likely to spend an exorbitant amount of time on the phone with someone talking trash about something than we are talking the gospel to them. That should prick all of our hearts. So we rejoice as we see the refinement in our life. I am not the same person, husband, father, community member, pastor that I was 15 years ago. God has refined me. There have been trials and difficulties and times that I have thrown my hands up in the air and said, I'm done, I quit, I'm out, I'm I'm done. If this is serving you, I don't want it. And side note, any of you that know me anytime, you know, Satan tempts, God tests. So when sin is brought before you, that's temptation. That's not God testing you. That's Satan tempting you. God doesn't use sin to test. So remember that. Don't. Don't blame God because you're being tempted by Satan. You can look back and rejoice that you overcame that temptation and you can give God all the glory and honor for it. But God doesn't dangle sin in front of our face in order to test us. Satan dangles sin in front of our face to tempt us. So there's a helpfulness in pain and in testing. After my father's death and then... Shortly after that, months later, the suicide of a very close family member, I found myself wrecked, sorrowful, ready to call it done. Stick a fork in me, I'm done. I sat in a church in Epsom, New Hampshire, and I wept. And I was mad at God. My sister wanted to go to church with me. I said, no, go to another one. I'm going to this one by myself. And I sat in that church and I wept. And the pastor's wife came up to me and she showed me love and she recommended a book, The Problem of Pain. From the Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. And I was super encouraged in the service, and God spoke to me, and it was fabulous. That was April. 2018 in July of 2020 her son took his own life and a highlight of the book a quote I'll never forget God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience but shouts to us in our pain it is his megaphone to rouse A deaf world. So 1 Peter says, in 1 Peter, Peter tells us, rejoice as you look back on your trials. Rejoice as you see God growing you and refining you. And lastly, he says, rejoice as we are made confident in that faith. Remember I talked about the wiffle ball bats? I had some confidence in something that I had already seen happen, something that I had already felt, something that I had already endured. And I wasn't afraid of the next big and bad thing. This is the final reality that we see in the text. Peter begins by pointing back in verse 8, and he commends his readers that even though they hadn't seen Jesus, they love him. Where'd that love come from? How is it even possible to love a Savior we haven't seen? In their hearts, they believe and they love And that reality is something that continues even now. And the effects are moments when they, quote the text, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. They so love Jesus that even the trials and difficulties that they have create more love for him. Tested love they feel the sovereignty of god in their life they see and taste the sovereignty of god in their life if you have suffered and if you have struggled and you have lost and tears have poured from your heart they have also poured from his eyes i've in a few times in my life have experienced what i would say was the audible voice of god And I might get a little bit outside of my Reformed theology here. When I sat in that church. The Sunday after my dad passed. God said he was broken about Bill, too. I said, my dad didn't deserve this. He didn't deserve to die the way he died. He was a good man. He lived so good. He's. 5,000 times the man I was. God, he had no, he should never have died that way. And He said, I'm broken for Bill, too. Do you realize that death is something that God didn't want for us? So he sent his son to endure it so that we might have everlasting life. Can you rejoice in how the Lord has changed you and shaped you and remade you? I'm going to ask five questions as I close. Can you tell Jesus that he's worth it? He's worth enduring all of the pain that we have gone through, all of the unknown hurt. Can you rejoice in the fact that we could even have the thought to rejoice? if you have walked through hardship, and if you are able to look back and apply the lessons that you have learned, that is glory and honor to God. Can you rejoice how the Lord has changed you and shaped you and remade you? A couple tough ones. The first one is directed particularly at me. Can you stop trusting in your political party for your future? Can you stop making your spouse's actions the source of your happiness or sadness? Can the life and death of a family member stop ending your life too? These are all difficult questions to ask, and the answer to every single one of them is an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that You chose to exile me. Remind me of that the next time I face a trial that is too difficult for me to bear. Remind my family and my friends of that as I lay weeping in a floor the next time a great trial comes. Help me to look back and remember when I've shaken my fist at you and quit on you more times than I can count on my hands. For it only reminds me of your mercy that is new every day. It only reminds me of a God who loves me because He loves me and not because of the things that I do. Thank you for loving me truly, with purpose, with power, and with hope. And Lord, as we depart here today, many of us, really, from the pain and the suffering and the difficulties of this life, may we see through it Lose our focus on it and put our focus on Your enduring hope. For it is what will power us through and it is what will bring You honor and glory. We are reminded daily of Your mercies. May they be fresh anew tomorrow. In Jesus' name, Amen.